Hey, welcome, welcome. Good morning, River. It is a great day to be alive and to serve the Lord God of heaven. So I don't know where you are and what's going on in your life, but today is a new morning that God has given us to know Him and serve Him. And uh, if you are new at River, I want to especially say welcome. And if uh, River is your home, I'm glad you're here too. And uh, it's a good day to, to share with what God is uh, up to in our lives. Hey, as we start out this morning, we've been walking through the book of Judges. And we are somewhere, I don't know, what, our seventh or eighth judge, and it kind of feels like we're kind of going around the airport, you know, time and time again, and uh, running into the exact same problem in people's lives uh, as we have been all along the way. But none of us here ever had that problem, right? We never battle the exact same thing and make the same mess ups and do the same problem. That, that's not none of our issues at all, right? So I want to I share a verse with you this morning to kind of help you put judges in perspective. And honestly, most of the Old Testament, it, uh, look at Romans 15.4. I want you to notice this verse with what, what, um, what God gives for us. It says this, it says, Paul says this, he says, whatever was written in former days, that's Old Testament, all right? So whatever was written kind of in the past, he says, was written for our instruction. It was written to teach us so that we could benefit from it. And here's what the end result of that is all about. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So God wrote the Old Testament, and Judges is a key part of that because God wants to teach us encouragement, and He wants to give us endurance and as we experience those, it gives us hope. So as we, we read the, the Old Testament, we read a lot of the things that are going on, I want us to realize that these things are they're far from just history lessons, that, and they are more than just um, God, God kind of uh, you know, pointing out all the bad stuff that we've ever done or that kind of thing, but God wants to give us hope in the middle of it. So this morning, as we turn to a new judge, his name is Jephthah, I want us to focus more so this morning on so much on what they did as more on what is God doing in people's lives. So you guys know the backstory. The, they do evil again in the sight of the Lord. There's been judge or hero after hero that gets raised up and they, the, the, the Jewish people finally realize their mistake for decades of turning their back on God and God allows oppression to come in. And then they kind of say, what are we doing? God, help us. And then God raises up a hero and, and delivers them and all of that. So instead of focusing so much in the person's life and all of that stuff, I want us to think about this morning is, what is God doing in all of this picture? There's three things I want to, to point out this morning to give us hope, to give us encouragement, to help us endure through the difficulties of life, as Romans talks about and, uh, and that is, I want us to realize this morning that God is patient. He's patient with you and me, ridiculously patient. He cares. He doesn't leave us alone. And third, that he's, he's holy. 
So read with me if you would. We're going to flip to the Old Testament, Judges 10, and I want us to see how patient God is. Look in verse 6, similar refrain. The Bible says this, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Those were different gods. But now they've got other gods. Look at this. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They've got like this whole little pantheon going on. Some of you collected action figures when you were kids. Some of you probably still do. I don't know. But, you know, the, the people were doing that. They're like, oh, there's a new God in town. Oh, we can add this one to our little collection, and we can just, you know, focus. And so God is in heaven. It's like, what are you people doing? Like, oh, my goodness. So look at what verse 7 says. Oh, and then verse 6, and they forsook the Lord, so they walked away from God, and they did not serve him. In verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan, that's the river, to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. You got the picture, they were pressed, they were crushed. Came to my mind, you ever press garlic? You know, it's not a pretty picture for garlic when it's getting crushed and the oppression and the, the, the pressure and the distress that was going on in the people. In verse 10, it says this, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. Well, that's a little bit new. They're taking ownership. It's our fault. We've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. And yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. What God was saying is this, why are you following all the gods of these people? These people are all losers. I defeated all of these people. Like, this makes no sense. What in the world are you doing? Didn't I deliver you from these people? Why are you going back and you're following their ways? Look at verse 7, 13. Oh, wait, or verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Punish us. Do whatever you have to do, God. But only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Hey, pray with me this morning, would you? Father, I just sense the need to pray today. I'm grateful that we can call out to you. Uh, when we're together, when we're alone, when there's joy in our heart, when there's distress and there's anguish. And Father, I pray that you would open your word to our heart this morning. May we catch a clear picture of your character, of your glory. And Father, I pray that none of us in this room would be the same. That as you reveal yourself to us, as you remind us of who you are, Father, I pray that you would change our hearts today. 
Father, every one of us needs you today more than we did yesterday. And I ask that your word would speak through the Holy Spirit into our souls today. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. The last verse I just read said that God began to be impatient with Israel. I want us to recognize that while God may be getting impatient at this point, kind of putting himself in our words, he's, you know, he's the parent that is like, for the 20th time, we've had this conversation, you know, where you have been patient and patient and patient. And then finally, they're like, oh my goodness, this is starting to wear out. It's starting to get a little thin. Even though the Bible says that God was getting impatient, I think God was conveying to the people, look guys, in human terms, you are treading thin ice. Like, let's get this act together. Let's grow. Let's work on this. In God-sized terms, God is still continuing to be patient. He's patient again. They cry out to God. He raises up a guy by the name of Jephthah, and Jephthah goes and defeats the enemy again. And then they go and sin again, and then there's three more judges and at the end of verse 12 that we don't know much detail about. But, you know, this, this happens again and again and again. The character of God that I want us to first recognize is that God is ridiculously patient. He is patient in your life and in my life. Do you ever, when you hit that fifth and sixth and tenth and twentieth time, where you genuinely are trying to improve, you're trying to get over, I don't care if it's anger if it's if maybe you're, you're battling lust, maybe there's just other things, criticism or gossip or envy, or you're battling image issues that you just know deep down are not honoring God, but things that are kind of feel like they're hardwired into your soul that you can't get past, maybe you're, you're, you're uh, gripped by fear, those, those things that you know because we sing about them and you read the Bible and you read what other followers of, of Christ have lived their lives like and you're like, I should be more like that. That needs to be more in my life. I need to be bolder. I need to not be even so afraid. I need to not be so worried or so self-conscious. And, and, and you find yourself again confessing those things to God and saying, God, forgive me. And in those moments, if you're not careful, you can think, does God really love me? Like, am I, am I beginning to tread on thin ice with God? Is God about to, you know, to throw me to the side of the road and move on? Is, 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 have I used up all my little grace chips that God has offered to me, you know, kind of doled them out one by one? And, and if we're not careful, what we're beginning to do when those things come into our mind is, is we're beginning to, instead of us being made in God's image, we're beginning to make God in our image. Because that's the way we all operate, right? If you're a boss or and you come back to your employee for the 20th time, would you please do this? Or maybe you're newlywed and you're like, would you please put the toilet seat down for the 50 millionth time, you know? Uh, you just, you just, that wears out. But God's patience is infinite. It, he never, never, ever wears out whatsoever. A few weeks ago, I ran across a new kind of rope that is fairly new that I have not, had not heard of before. It's called Amsteel Blue. Do not ask me why it's called blue. This is green, but the actual name of it is Amsteel Blue, and you can get it all different kinds of colors, and it's kind of a cool rope. You can't see it, but it flexes, and you can weave it in on itself. And what's amazing about it is it's, it's super soft, it's lightweight, and it's stronger than steel of the same size. 
This, this little rope has a braking strength, minimum braking strength of almost 8,000 pounds. Like I could, you could tow a car with it and it's not terribly expensive. It's lightweight, I think like 100 feet of it weighs just like a pound, a little over a pound, and it floats, it's, it's crazy. It's made out of like some sort of lightweight microplastic and it's kind of hollow, it's just it's amazing. And if you're into ropes, which I'm not that into ropes too much, but you're like, yeah, I'm not sure about that, Sean, you're really geeking out over this. But uh, it also doesn't stretch much at all. In fact, it only like stretches 10%. If you've done any rock climb, which I haven't, but I read some of that stuff because I like the outdoors, it's just all ropes stretch ridiculously amount. God's patience is a lot like this rope. It, it doesn't stretch. It doesn't wear out. In fact, this wears, it's designed to replace steel cables. Like in, you have big machines that have pull cables. They will replace it with this, and it wears three times as long as cable, and it's just plastic. It's insane. It's a ridiculously amazing uh, kind of an invention. And uh, so God's patience is a lot like this. It doesn't stretch thin. You can't break it. It's ridiculously strong, and you can rely on it. I want you to think about that. When you are struggling and wrestling in your life and in your world, God expects that you're going to sin against him. When you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you've asked him for forgiveness of your sin and he has declared you to be righteous and pure and good, I want us to realize that in the middle of that, that, that God expects us to grow and he expects us to be increasingly holy and I'll talk about that in a minute. But along that journey, we are going to fall short of that. It's part of who we are. That's never an excuse for us to continue on in sin. Well, God will just deal with it. God will be nice to me and forgive me. That never works out very well, by the way. It didn't work out well for the Jews because remember those words, crushed, <laughs> oppressed, distressed? Those are not fun times. So you avoid a lot of that whenever you live godly and honor Jesus. But I want you and me to realize this morning is that God is, is ridiculously patient. And is, you can't break it. Amazingly patient in our life. Now, a couple of things because of that. You and I need to have gratitude. See, when you and I begin to not be grateful for the patience of God, we begin to subtly think that we deserve it. And it's never a good thing when people think they deserve something, right? There's, a different, there's something different inside of you. We need to realize that the patience and the goodness and the grace of God through His Son Jesus dying on the cross is something we don't earn. And every day we should have an incredible gratitude. So when you and I mess up before God and we go before him and we say, God, would you forgive me and help me to grow? We continue to play that game and we continue. It's not a game, but as we continue to lean into it and we confess our sin and we seek help and we deal with it and God begins to more and more change us to kind of pull us out of that mud, is that we need to have an incredible gratitude in our heart every morning waking up that we are a forgiven child of God because of what Jesus has done in our life. We should never feel like we deserved it, never feel like we earned it. In fact, when you and I begin to take it even just for granted and just forget about that, our heart begins to grow cold toward God. We begin to ignore Him. We begin to think we've got this. That's kind of how the, the, the Jewish people get into this mess. They forsake God. They forget Him. They forget about Him, and they kind of walk away. So this morning, as we think about the patience that God has in your life, I want 
to, you to consciously realize that your response to God's goodness and His patience is gratitude. Thank you, God, for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for taking care of me in the, in the middle of all of that. And as a result, He expects us to be patient with other people too. Now that's a little bit harder to do, isn't it? Gratitude toward God is one thing, but now i got to be patient with other people? Peter thought he was kind of boasting when Jesus was teaching about forgiving people. And Peter kind of thought he was going to go to the head of the class. So, Lord, how many times do we have to forgive people? Seven times? And Jesus kind of looks at him like, yeah, right. No, 70 times seven. I can kind of see Peter like blinking and double-taking like, what? You know, literally, in other words, we are to continue to forgive over and over and over over again and that's the patience that God expects you see here's the thing God's goal and for us is not to make us happy is not to make us wealthy despite what you might hear on some popular preaching and TV today it is not to make us comfortable to make our lives convenient what God is trying to do in our life is to reveal himself to us that we might know him, and the end of that game is that he might build his character into our life. That's his goal for us, very simple. He is not worried about our inconveniences a whole lot. He's not worried about our uncomfortability a whole lot. He is worried about, if God were to worry, in human terms, about you and I reflecting his character. So whenever you discover something in the Bible about who God is like and what God has done, you need to realize that God is revealing that to you because he wants that same thing in your life. So we see here God being incredibly patient with the Jewish people. And he is incredibly patient with you and me. It's the same. And he in turn wants you and me to reflect that same patience with the people around us. Sean, that's hard. Yeah, that's ridiculously hard. Sean, you don't know how much that hurts. I don't know if it's possible for me to do that. Yeah, I know. I'm there with you. But I know this much, that a supernatural God who is infinite in his patience, infinite in every one of his characters, cannot be measured, cannot, that is completely boundless, cannot be weighed because it would outweigh any scale that could ever be invented, cannot be, you know, a tape measure could never come to the end of it, never exhaust it. That same God wants to impart that character, that growth, that same life change inside of you. So the patience that ultimately that, that we run out of, we run out of our own patience. And God says, let me give you a little bit of my patience. And God wants you and I, you and me, to grow through that and to, to demonstrate that more and more with the people around us. And that involves forgiveness that involves putting up with some stuff, long-suffering and enduring. But that's what God did with them, and that's what God has done with you and me, and that's what God wants to do you to do with the people in your life around you. Second character of God I want us to notice. Not only is God patient, but God is a God who cares. The worst thing that God could ever do for you and me, in fact, anyone on this planet, would be just to ignore us to leave us alone, to, to ghost us, if you will, to just like cut off all communication and just check out, like, man, I'm done, peace out. I'm, nice knowing you, I'm, I'm out of here. It's the worst thing that God could ever do. 
You see, God comes to the Jews, and even though he's coming at them and he's angry, it's an anger that's out of love. It's an anger that's expressed because he cares. It's an anger that says, guys, I'm trying to help you. It's not an anger that says, I'm an angry person and I have anger issues. It's not a, it's not a, a, a vindictive, selfish, self-centered anger, which most of our anger really is. We get angry when we get inconvenienced, when somebody else causes us a problem or keeping us from doing what we want to do. Like, I really want to be asleep right now and you're not letting me. Thank you. I'm angry and it's all your fault. God never does any of that. God's anger is actually a reflection of his love, that he says, I love you and I care about you. Let's, let's stop the nonsense. He comes to us because he, because he cares. And so he dives into our life and he deals with things. The Bible says that the, the, the son that the Lord loves, the old King James says he scourges, scourges us because he, he loves us, because he treats us as sons. He doesn't ignore us. Think about it this way. Do problems ever in your car or your house solve themselves when you ignore them? When you ignore noises, do they go away? Do they get better? The answer to that is no. When you notice there's a problem and a leak in your house, does it ever go away? No. It, it doesn't just somehow self-heal and fix itself. Problems always get bigger when you ignore them. So God says, I, I love you, and I'm going to dive in. This is a big problem, and it's not going to be pretty. We're talking extreme makeover. If you've ever renovated a house, it's never pretty. I mean, when you start getting things, you find stuff like, literally skeletons of mice behind the walls and I mean it's just it's ugly and you if it's an old house 1800s you go what in the world were they thinking but what happens is later on the work that you did in a hundred years people will be like what were you thinking you know that same problem but it's always messy always smelly always dirty always inconvenient always frustrating and God says but I care I'm gonna dive into your life and I'm gonna engage you and I'm going to help you to see that what you're doing is making a mess. So all the while, we see this whole cycle. We see that not only is God ridiculously patient, he doesn't enable people into sin, but he cares enough to dive in and to deal with it. You see, all of the characteristics of God, if you will, they're all perfect and they're all in tension to one another. You know, picture almost conceptually like a rubber band. If I had a rubber band between two hands and stretched it, the more I pull this way, the more it's going to pull this one. And the more I pull this way, the more it pulls this one. They would be in tension with one another. All of God's attributes are in tension. God is patient. But in the middle of pa God's patience doesn't mean that he is just going to say, hey, I don't care, do whatever you want to do. He came to Eli. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament with Eli? He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were, um, they were a disaster. Um, they were ridiculously selfish men, young men, I presume, working in the, the, the tabernacle at the time and uh, working, you know, kind of serving God among the people. They were seducing women in the congregation. They were just, uh, they were greedy and all kinds of things. And, you know, if we're not careful, we say, well, our patience should be just like that. Just let people do whatever we want to do. No, God's patience never enables us to sin. Never. In fact, God comes to Eli and God's like, what are you doing, Eli? Like, you should have dealt with these two boys. I don't care if they're related to you or not. What in the world are you thinking? You should be holding them accountable. 
So God is patience, but you have to understand his patience, intention, and I'll talk especially in a minute with his holiness, but his patience is also a part of his caring. God's patient, but he cares, so he's going to dive in, and he's going to deal with the, the junk in our life, and he's going to hold us accountable, and he will correct us when we need correcting. He'll punish us when we need to be punished, and every bit of it is because he cares into our life. Because of that, you and I should trust God to care for us. We should trust him deeply. God called out in the verse a minute ago. He, go, he turns to his followers and he says, Look, go cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. If you think that they're the ones you want to follow, so be it. God really didn't want them to. He obviously was like, hey, let's, let's compare what I've done for you and what they've done for you. They've done nothing but, in fact, bring you low and cause, cause nothing but heartache and headache and pain. I'm the one that's delivered you. What God is trying to point out to the Jewish people that they were forgetting over and over and over again until finally they would wake up, and He wants us to realize it. He wants us to wake up sooner, but God is saying, Guys, I'm the one that will save you. I'm the one that will take care of you. I'm the one that sent my son Jesus to pay the penalty on the cross for your sins, that you might be forgiven and might be made whole, and to redeem your life, to give you freedom. And I'm still the one, after you make that major faith step and you become my child, I'm still that one that wants to save and work in your life. Why are you trusting other things around you? Why are you finding your hope and your security and your confidence in other things? Find it in me. I am your God who will save. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to, to trust him, not manipulate him, to trust him. Jephthah thought he could manipulate God. Jephthah was the hero in this, that, that gets raised up in this instance. And you can, you can read it. We'll read it in our life groups this week, a good portion of it. And he was kind of an outcast. His mother was a prostitute. And all his, his half-brothers and sisters said, Who are you? Get out of here. And they got, they got rid of him. And he, he, was, uh, he was a man of questionable character as well. Not because his mom was a prostitute. That wasn't any of his doing. But the natural part of his life as a man was um, he was not only an outcast, but he was you know, much like Abimelech last week. And the enemy comes knocking on the door, and all of Israel kind of looks around in that area like, we don't have anybody, but they knew this Jephthah guy was a warrior. And so they go say, hey, you can be our king. And in fact, God, the Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah. In fact, read with me in verse 29. So God anoints him, if you will, the judge of that time, even though he was still messed up as could be. In verse 29, the Bible says this, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And here's where he messes up, big time. Verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever, really whoever, comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. On face value, that sounds like a very good idea, except for the fact he said, whatever comes out of my house. Now, I do have some pets in my house, but people outnumber the pets. 
If, if pets outnumber the people in the house, then you are borderline weird, like the cat person or the dog person, whatever. As long as there's at least more people than pets, you're on safe, sane ground. And so Jephthah goes and says, God, I'll make a deal with you. If I go and deliver Israel, then here's the deal. Whatever comes out of my house, I'm going to offer it up as a burnt offering to you. I don't know what he had for pets in his house, but that's a risky deal. I mean, the ratio, I haven't done the math, but, you know, it's about, there's about two-thirds people to, to there are animals running out of my house. Like, that is not a good odd, right? So the story goes on is that Jephthah goes and he wins the day, he fights the battle, and he comes home. And in verse 34, And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. His daughter comes out. You know what Jephthah was trying to do before he realized the price of it? He was trying to manipulate God. He was trying to make God do something for him. He was trying to do with God what he did with the, the leaders of Israel. And the leaders of Israel came to him and said, Hey, you come fight the battles for us. He goes... It's kind of like buying a house. He counter-offered. He's like, okay, but you need to throw something in this pot and sweeten the pot. I want to be king if I come back. So then he goes and he tries to manipulate with God. He's like, hmm, God, if I can get something out of you, if you can win the day, then I tell you what, I'm going to throw a little. He's bartering and he's trying to manipulate God in his prayers. When you and I trust God, we don't manipulate him. How often your prayers and I, my prayers, are not prayers of true faith, trusting in the God of heaven. How often they are prayers of manipulation. God, if you will do this for me, then I'll behave, or I'll be a nice guy, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. You see, manipulation of God is not a demonstration of faith and trust. God already, His Holy Spirit was already upon Him. God was already speaking to Israel and saying, I will deliver you, I'll take care of you. And in, rather than trusting God, he manipulated him. So you and I need to realize that when we read and look at Scripture, we need to trust God simply, childlike faith, not skeptically, not cynically, not guardedly, but unreservedly. Trust God completely, without manipulation, without fear, completely. Now, the character that God's trying to build in our life, He wants us to care for other people. You see, that same character, that even when Israel continued to mess up and mess up, He was patient with them, but He reached out and He cared for them. You see, here's the thing. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more your life and character ought to reflect who Jesus really is. It ought to grow. It ought to change. That's one of our four core values as a church. If you've been through our Discover class, we talk about that. Is that we believe that all of us need to be continually changed for the better. That's what Jesus wants to do in our life. The image I have is like a, a, a car repair shop, right? Your car always needs to get changed for the better, because if it's not, it's getting changed for the worse. <laughs> it's either going down, or it's hopefully getting better, or at least status quo. Like, Sean, it doesn't have to get better. As long as it stays status quo, I'm good. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that, too. 
But we always need to be worked on is where I'm headed with that. And God, God wants that character to build more and more. So our patience ought to be growing and our care for other people ought to be growing. The Christian life is not, okay, great, I'm saved, I've got good friends, I learned the routine, I now, kind of my life is cleaned up, I'm not quite so much sin as I used to be. That's awesome. But God wants his character inside of us more and more, which means we care for people more and more when they don't owe us anything. When there's nothing around us that, that should naturally be drawn that way. We ought to care deeply about people's lives and take interest both personally and kind of globally. The Operation Christmas Trial thing is a wonderful thing to do and to bring Christmas gifts to kids that we'll never meet. We should care kind of you know, sight unseen in that way. But we ought to care personally, uh, personally invested deeply and the lives of those around us, carving out time, carving out space, not just when we benefit it, not just for our own kids, our own family, but for those around us, because that's what God himself does. Third thing, the third character of God, intention with the others, is God is a holy God. God is patient and God cares. God is not like an indulgent grandmother that just thinks we hung the moon just because we breathe air and, and eat her, her special cooking or whatever. God deals with our sin. One of the key teachings in the Bible is that, that God is holy. He is a holy God. Now, we usually think of holiness in terms of righteousness. God's holy and we're sinners. We usually think of it that way, but holy really is much more than that. It means that God is unique, that God is one of a kind, totally, completely different than everything else. Listen to what 1 Samuel 2, 2 says. There is none holy like the Lord. Get the idea of uniqueness? None is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. And consequently, there is no rock like our God. You see, God alone is unique. All of the attributes of God perfection, his goodness, his omniscience, he knows everything, his omnipotence, his power, his patience, his love, his justice, his righteousness, all of those together. His holiness is almost like all of those all wrapped up together, that he is completely holy and unlike everything else. You see, that's why God takes it personally when we worship other gods, because we we lower his holiness, if that were even possible, at least it's lowered in our minds, not in reality, but we bring him down to our level, down to the earth, if you will. In Leviticus, the Bible says this, Leviticus 11.45, he was a part of the teaching of the law to the, the, the first people of this earth, and he says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. We discover that because God's holy, we're to be holy. But the point I wanted to focus on here is that, that God is saying, guys, this is who I am. I am holy. This is my nature. This is at the very core of who I am completely. When we read the book of Deuteronomy, the, the book of Deuteronomy, it means second law or second giving of the law. In Exodus, God gave uh, uh, Moses the first law when he first went up Mount Sinai and God wrote it on the tablets and all of that. But the second time around, just and we know the, the people 
didn't follow him and they doubted God and God led them in the wilderness for 40 years. And so just before Moses dies and goes off onto his deathbed, he gives the law again, the second law, and that's what Deuteronomy is all about. And he gives the Ten Commandments all over again in chapter 5. But when you read chapter 4, he tells them again, he says, guys, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any carved images like anything that flies in the sky, fish that swim in the sea. Don't be paying attention to the stars and the moon, lest you bow down to them and serve them. I'm amazed. Hundreds of thousands of years since that time, we still, people are like, oh, I need my special zodiac signs. I need to know what's going to happen today. God says all of that stuff is ridiculous. Don't change, don't be trusting anything around, karma and any of that cosmic whatever in the world, thoughts that just might kind of go through the, the airwaves. He says, I am unique. I am unlike any other God before that you've ever seen or ever will see. He is holy. And because of that, God cannot, uh, he cannot ever condone sin. It's an absolute impossibility to God. His holiness demands it. He's going to deal with it. He cannot ignore it. He will never enable it. And that means for you and for me, if it were not for Jesus, his son, we would be completely without hope. Completely. I want you to understand the patience of God. What God was doing with the, and, and I'm connect these dots for you, what God was doing with the Jewish people is, is he was making a way of salvation in this world, a world that we had all messed up in our sin. And he didn't throw the world away, but he knew that he was going to bring a Savior. And he had a game plan, a way that sin could be paid for so that he could forgive sin and without condoning sin. And then somebody had to pay the price, and God can't just ignore it. He can't sweep sin under a rug or like when people come over, throw it in the closet, you know. He can't just push it to the side or hide it or try to cover it over. And so he was pulling the Jewish people aside so that he could reveal himself and to set aside a people that would be pure and that would know him and reveal his character and that through them he could bring the Messiah, the Savior to the world. So when they're messing it all up and following other gods, it wasn't just they were messing up their life, they were messing up everybody's life. Like if they don't get this right, Jesus isn't born. And Jesus can't come and die on the cross for our sins. I mean, they were really really messing up the fate of the world, if you will. And yet God was still so patient in the middle of that. And God ultimately worked in their lives and brought them to the place where they were following Him and He had revealed Himself. And, and downstream, they still messed up. And frankly, you and I, if we were to have been there, it would have been this exact same way. But God brought His Son Jesus to die on the cross for us, to be condemned for our very sin. Because God is holy, that sin must always be paid for, can never be enabled, can never be ignored, can never be neglected. And because He paid for our sins by the sacrifice of His own perfect Son, Jesus, God could still be holy and forgive sinners. He could be holy and overlook sin. He could be holy and declare us to be holy because our sins got transferred onto Jesus and Jesus' righteousness got transferred onto us. 
in a few minutes, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And that's really what this is all about, is it's a remembrance, it's a memorial, it's a reminder to us that we have hope because of what Jesus did. It's a picture of God's holiness. That's why in the book of 1 Corinthians, when the church at Corinth was taking this so lightly, Paul said, some of you guys are physically ill, some of you have died because you're t- treating this lightly. It's a picture of the holiness of God. It's the picture of, of the infinite love that God has for us. It's the, the, the picture of, of, of salvation. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so it's a reminder to us that when we know Jesus is our Savior and Lord, it's a, it's, it doesn't refresh that salvation. It's not hitting Control-Alt-Delete on the computer screen, like, oh, I just need to reboot a little bit, that somehow if you take this, it's going to make you better. It's not the way this works. It's actually just meant to be a reminder so that you don't forget the patience of God, to help you to remember, to help you to remember the love and the care, and to help you to remember the, the holiness, the infiniteness of our God and what He has shared with you and me. I mean, it should, it should absolutely should absolutely blow our minds. You can't put God in a, a box anywhere. The, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to the Jews and he had them set aside a special room called the Holy of Holies and it was in the tabernacle and later in the temple that Solomon built. And it was a room in which no one would ever go except one time a year a high priest would go in and it was only after the sacrificing of, of the of the animals and of the blood, and he would go in there to, to make atonement for the people and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That, that room didn't house God. It was the Holy of Holies. I mean, there's no way when God is infinite in love, infinite in power, infinite in wisdom, you can't put that in a box. You can't fathom it or wrap your mind around it. So it was more representative, if you will. I mean, I believe God's presence was there in a real way, but but it was still outside of that, and we can talk about all the metaphysics of that later on, but uh, it should blow our minds that that God of the universe has made it possible to us to know Him and to save us and forgive us, and in turn, He wants us to live out a holy life. You see, because God is holy and the one and only God, it means we ought to serve Him alone, right? Just like when we know that God cares, we ought to trust Him, just like when God's patient with us, that, um, that we in turn should be patient with others and that we especially should be great, grateful for Him. But because God is holy, we serve only Him. We don't serve anyone else. In fact, when you go to work in the morning or you go into the classroom in the morning, you're not serving your professor. You're not serving your boss. You're serving the Most High God. We're to serve only Him. Everything in our life is to be done for His glory. Everything is ultimately for Him. We serve God. And because He's holy, He says, just as I read in Leviticus, He commands us to be holy, a people set apart, a people that are unique, not weird, (laughs) but a people that that honor and live differently out of a life that, that knows and loves and follows the Lord Jesus. So this morning, as our team comes up and our ushers get ready to pass out these elements, I want to challenge you a little bit. At the very least, I want to prepare your hearts to participate in this supper as a reminder of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. 
It should be a time of worship and great memory of what He has done in saving us. But I want to challenge you this morning. Have you taken for granted the patience of God in your life? Have you taken for granted that He was patient with your sin before you were born? He's patient with your sin now. And as we participate in the supper, it's a reflection of that, that, that grace that He has offered to us and He gives us. I want to challenge you, how is your care for other people? Do you care about people the way Jesus did? Well, Sean, if you say it like that, no, I don't. Yeah, if I say it like that, I would have to stick my hand in the air. I don't either. So let me ask it to you this way. Is your care for other people growing? Is it increasing? Are you demonstrating it? Or are you allowing life to suck you into the hole to the degree that you focus all about you? And whatever's just right around you. And I, we're all going to get pulled into that. And sometimes there's seasons where it's really tough and we have to do that. But guys, God also says, I care about people all around you. And are you increasingly leaning into that, demonstrating that care for those? Are you living a life that's holy before a holy God? He takes notice. He, took, he went to all of this effort to save us, to redeem us, to deliver us, and to free us from the chains of sin to change every aspect of us if we will allow him to do that. And he says, I want you to live differently. Differently. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle with sin. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle with some identity issues in that. So we all have identity issues wrapped up in sin in our past lives. But along the way, we'll live holy if we lean into that and follow the steps of our Lord Jesus. So this morning, I don't know what God has spoken into your heart today. But as we sing this song, and ushers, you can come on up here. I'm going to pray. And uh, come on up, ushers. I'm going to pray, and they're going to pass out these elements for us. And I want you to reflect on those things, or one thing or something of that. But this table is meant for everybody who knows the Lord Jesus and has surrendered to Him and knows Him as Lord of your life. And in that, if that is something that is in your life, then take part of this and remember and rejoice. So pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died for us to save us. Father, I thank you that you are so patient with us. It's unbreakable. Thank you, Father, that your care is infinite. Thank you that you are holy. And Father, you share all of those characters with us and in turn want us to reflect them. Lord, we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand?
Paul in 1 Corinthians helped the, the church to get their heart and mind squared away when it came to the Lord's table. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament, the new agreement in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a very real way, this morning as we partake of this, that we're proclaiming not just the past that Jesus died, but we're proclaiming the future that he's coming back. Father, much just like John the Apostle, I agree, we as a church agree, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Won't you stand as we sing?
Won't you pray with me as our ushers come to receive our offering? Father, we are so grateful that you care for us. And Father, we declare clearly as a church that we so need you in every area of our life. Lord, help us to live with dependency upon you. Thank you that we can trust you completely. Forgive us, Father, when we begin to think somehow that we need to manipulate you or negotiate something, but somehow to either gain an advantage or to somehow to make you dependable. Father, you're dependable and your care is perfect and good because it's who you are. We trust you, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.